Well, tonight we're continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a New Covenant. New Testament, New Covenant, the word Testament and Covenant, the same exact Greek word in the Bible. There isn't a New Testament and a New Covenant. There's simply a New Testament and a New Covenant. And neither are about books of the Bible. The New Testament or New Covenant is about the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, creating a whole new way of relating to God that was different than the Old Testament of the law of Moses. We are in teaching number 51 in our study on Hebrews called The Power to Persevere. And it comes out of Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, which reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And we're going to work through all of these verses tonight. We're going to start with Hebrews 12, 1, which says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the we here is who we've been looking at our entire study in Hebrews, it's the Jewish people. The Jewish people were under tremendous persecution for believing in Jesus as the Christ and believing in his work on the cross for forgiveness, for righteousness, for a holy, clean, pure standing before God, apart from the law. So there were many Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus as the Christ and they were walking by faith in his work on the cross. So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's referring back to Hebrews chapter 11. We talked about in our previous study that the word cloud here is not the Greek word. It's really a poor translation. It's since we are surrounded by such a great multitude of witnesses or great multitude of those whose lives testify to what it means to walk by faith. So Hebrews chapter 11 is about the people in the Jewish scriptures who lived a life of faith, they walked by faith. Hebrews 11 flows out of Hebrews 10, which where the writer says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and who are saved. And then he explains in Hebrews 11, Faith. He's seeking to encourage the Jewish believers to walk by faith in the persecution. Just as they have faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, they have faith in Jesus as the Christ. Now, take this faith and walk through the persecution with the same faith. And he uses those in Hebrews 11 as a model for faith that would testify to walking by faith in the realities of life, and specifically for the Jewish people in AD 65, the reality of persecution. Now, we can also learn a lot from Hebrews 11 about throwing off the sin of unbelief, because that's the sin, the sin that so easily entangles in Hebrews 12 is the sin of unbelief. And so the writer says, throw off all that entangles throw off the sin of unbelief. So what can we learn from Hebrews 11 about throwing off the sin of unbelief, throwing off all that entangles, and living life through the lens of faith? Because that's how those of Hebrews 11 were living. They were, they were looking at life through the lens of faith, and they were living their lives through the lens of faith. Just some quick principles of what we can learn as believers is focus on the eternal promises of God during the earthly pressures and problems of life. Focus on the eternal promises of God when tempted by the sinful earthly pleasures. Live with a long-term view of eternity during the short-term life on earth. 
live with an eternal perspective while living on earth. See the future with eyes of faith. That's what a farmer does. A farmer, before he ever sees his crop, sees his crop in his mind. And therefore he gets up, he works the field, and eventually one day he sees fulfilled what was started just within his mind. So see the future with eyes of faith. That's what they did in Hebrews 11. Remember, they saw the city that was designed and built by God. Though they hadn't experienced the city yet, they hadn't entered the city yet, they lived in faith that one day this city designed and built by God would come. And we live with the same faith. We live with an eternal perspective while living on this earth. We see the future with eyes of faith. And then we see our problems on this earth as temporal. So when we look back into Hebrews 11, those are some of the ways that people live with faith in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we also learn that sometimes faith watches. That's we see the invisible God. Faith sees the invisible God. That's what the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 11, 3 through 6. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Believe that he exists. That's watching. That's seeing the invisible God in our daily lives. And that's what Moses did. Moses saw the God who was invisible during his life on earth. Look at Hebrews eleven twenty four through 27. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered, and that's one of the words we're going to look at tonight. Moses persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So faith watches. Faith sees the invisible God and the realities of our lives and the problems of our lives and the pressures of our lives and the temptations of our lives. We see the invisible God, which gives us strength to persevere and to overcome. Sometimes faith works. We see this in Hebrews 11.7, that's what Noah did when he built the ark. We keep hammering, we keep doing what we're doing because that's what God has called us to do. I remember Becky used to tell me years ago, just as I walked out this grace life and kept teaching this message and writing books and went through some very dark, difficult times, she would always tell me, hey, just keep hammering, keep hammering. And, and she was talking about what we learn from Noah when sometimes we want to give up, sometimes we want to quit, sometimes we want to walk away because the days are dark and the days are difficult and those days turn into seasons. And that's when we simply keep hammering. And that's what faith does sometimes. Faith works. It keeps hammering even though things are hard. And then sometimes faith walks. That's what Abraham did when he traveled to the promised land, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. That's what the people of Israel did when they walked through the Red Sea. That's Hebrews 11, 29. And sometimes faith walks. That's what the people of Israel did when they walked around the walls of Jericho. That's Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 30. And then sometimes faith waits. It's what Moses did when he refused to enjoy the sinful pleasures on earth for a short time. Hebrews 11, 24 through 28, that's what many people did when they died waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, Hebrews 11, 39, they were waiting for this city designed and built by God to come. And then sometimes faith welcomes, that's what Rahab did when she welcomed the spies, that's Hebrews 11, 31. And then sometimes faith withstands, that's specifically talking about rejection and persecution for our beliefs. And that's what those did who died with faith as they were looking for the city designed and built by God, Hebrews 11, 36 through 38. 
So in our own lives, sometimes faith watches, sometimes faith works, sometimes faith walks, sometimes faith waits, sometimes faith welcomes, and sometimes faith withstands rejection and persecution for our beliefs. So let's continue in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great multitude of witnesses, those who live by faith and died in faith, let us, now in Hebrews 12 here, let us, the let us is not in the Greek manuscripts here. That's been inserted by the translators. And I'll tell you why I think it's important that we know that as we move through this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The Greek way of reading this, the way it's written in the original Greek language is this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, having put off every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So often when we read Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 in these verses, we take the sentence after such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything. I think because of the let us being inserted, we miss that this isn't talking to the reader in this particular part to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I think it's referring back to those in Hebrews 11 because that's what they did. Take the let us out of it and, and read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, having put off every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It was the great cloud of witnesses that put off every weight and they put off the sin that so easily entangles. The sin that so easily entangles is the sin of unbelief. So those of Hebrews 11 had put off the sin of unbelief and they had put off what weighed them down, having put off every weight. So it's referring back to those of Hebrews 11. Also, we'll see it's going to refer to the leader too, but first it refers to that's what those in Hebrews 11 did. They put off every weight and they put off the sin that so easily entangles. They put off unbelief. Some welcomed, some walked, some withstood. That's putting off the sin of unbelief. Now, those of Hebrews 11, they put off the weight of a temporal perspective on life and unbelief, which changed how they lived, which we've done the same thing. We've, we've exchanged a very temporal view of life for an eternal view of life. And this eternal view of life that we have has changed how we live, what we do, the decisions that we make, where we go. Because we have an eternal perspective on life. We see the invisible God and the reality of our lives. Even though we haven't seen the resurrection of Jesus, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Seeing life through an eternal perspective is throwing off, getting entangled in a very temporal perspective of life. So those of Hebrews 11, they put off the weight of a temporal perspective on life. They threw off unbelief. It changed how they live. It changed how Noah lived. It changed how Moses lived. It changed how Joseph lived. All those in Hebrews 11, because they had an eternal perspective on life and they threw off a temporal perspective, it changed how they lived. They put on faith. They began to see life through an eternal perspective. They began to look at life through the eyes of an invisible God. They began to look at this coming city designed and built by God. They, they had an eternal view of life in the very temporal life that they lived. And it was their faith, how they looked at life through the lens of, it, of an eternal perspective, how they lived life based upon an eternal perspective. That became a testimony to those in AD 65 reading the book of Hebrews. 
All right, well, let's continue to read these verses, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, having thrown off every weight that hinders and the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles, that's what those of Hebrews 11 did, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The weight of the people in AD 65, in the same way that those of Hebrews 11 threw off every weight that hindered and the sin that so easily entangled, the sin of unbelief, the writer is saying, in the same way the reader of AD 65, throw off the heavy weights that hinder you and throw off the sin of unbelief that you can get entangled in. And then throwing off the weights that hinder and the sin of unbelief that easily entangles, then you can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Part of this weight for the people of AD 65 that they would put off would be the weight of a temporal perspective on life, the weight of a temporal perspective on, on the decisions and the choices that they were making. They're going through a great amount of persecution at the time. They're going through a great amount of rejection. They're losing their property, some of them. Some of them are being imprisoned. They're being scorned. They're being laughed at. They're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. They're losing opportunities. They're being kicked out of the synagogues. If they didn't throw off a very temporal perspective on life, it would be very easy for them to say, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth believing in Jesus as the Christ. It's not worth believing in Jesus for righteousness. It's not worth believing in the return of Jesus. It's not worth believing in this new city to come. And I'm just going to give up in the dark days. I'm going to give up in the dark seasons of persecution. And I'm going to reject Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to reject him as the Christ. I'm going to reject his work on the cross because the pain of the persecution is too great. So he's encouraging the people to see the persecution that they're experiencing through the lens of an eternal perspective. And that's putting on faith. It's looking at their persecution through the lens of an eternal perspective on the return of Christ, on the establishment of this coming city that God has designed and built. When you go back through Hebrews 11, that's what the people of Hebrews 11 did, and that's what the writer is encouraging the Jewish people in AD 65 to do as well. I think also putting off the weight of legalism and putting on the way of grace is a hindrance that they needed to let go of. The law is hindering. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is writing about in the book of Hebrews. He's, he's seeking to encourage the Jewish believers to throw off the weight of the law, the weight of the requirements of the law, of the expectations of the law that were at one point in time something that the Jewish people had to fulfill. They had to follow, but, but the law is now obsolete through the death of Christ. The New Testament of grace has come. The Old Testament of law is now gone. And the writer, I think, could be referring to put off the weight of legalism, put off the weight of the law, and put on the way of grace. Now, Jesus taught a lot about legalism when he was walking on the earth. He had compassion on those caught in legalism. L let's define legalism real quick. Legalism is a system of works put upon a group of people by the leaders who created the system. And so the leaders who've created this system of works is now telling the people that if you would adhere to the works, the expectations of the system, then you will be right with God. Then you will be close to God. Then you will be in fellowship with different religious leaders create different expectations or rules 
within their system. It depends upon the leaders and what they create as far as the system goes. So legalism is seeking to adhere to what the leaders say that we must do within their system, within their denomination, within their religion, within their group, adhering to what the leaders say, and by adhering to what the leaders say, then a person can be right with God and fellowship with God, close to God, even have eternal life. And in doing this and creating this legalistic works-based system, they typically take a lot of verses out of context. So they'll seek to provide proof verses for their legalistic system, yet their verses are taken out of context. Let me give you an example. An example would be the verse when Paul tells Timothy to show yourself approved. Study the word to show yourself approved. Well, a legalistic teacher will pull that verse out of context and he will tell his audience that the Bible says that we should study to show ourselves approved because that's what the Bible says. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's what Paul writes, and it's been put into the Bible. The word Bible just means a volume of information. It's like a library. The volume of information that's been collected and compiled and then placed into a book. It could be a Bible of sports. Could be a Bible of medicine. There's nothing spiritual about the word Bible. It just means a collection of information that's been compiled that is of the same topic that people can go to and read and learn. So the Bible doesn't say anything. It's Paul communicating to Timothy. And Paul is telling Timothy to study the Jewish scriptures so that when he is in Ephesus and he has a lot of different people coming to listen to him. He has believers in Jesus there. He has believers in Jesus who've invited their Jewish friends to come listen. He's had believers in Jesus who've invited their, their Gentile friends to come listen. There's a great mixed audience in Ephesus. And Timothy is the pastor. He's the teacher. He's the one people are coming to listen to and learn from. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, you don't need to show yourself approved to the audience when they show up. You don't need to show yourself approved to the Jews. You don't need to show yourself approved to the Gentiles. You just want to study scriptures, and you're talking about the Jewish scripture, so that when you communicate these scriptures to people, you're showing yourself approved unto God, that God approves of what you're teaching, because you're studying the scriptures so that you can accurately communicate the scriptures to your audience. So don't worry about, Timothy, if the Jews approve of you, if the Gentiles approve of you, or who approves of you in the audience. All that matters is that God approves of what you're teaching, and you're teaching it accurately, and you're teaching it clearly, pointing people to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus was going to die, that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, and that one day Jesus is going to return, and that Jesus was going to establish the Messiah, who is Jesus, was going to establish this new covenant of grace. So that's what that verse is talking about. So a legalist who puts people under the weight of bondage will say, see, the Bible says that you should study to show yourselves approved by God. And that's taken a verse out of context, and it becomes a part of their system of legalism that makes people feel weighed down and full of guilt. Jesus was dealing with the same type of culture during his time. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had created a system, a structure around the law of Moses. They had added to the law of Moses many works, many expectations, much to be adhered to according to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And here's some verses of how Jesus addressed those who were caught in legalism. Look in Matthew 23, 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, meaning they're the leaders of Judaism. They're the leaders of the law. So he tells the people, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you that's in accordance with the law of Moses because the Old Testament of law was still in effect in Matthew 23. The New Testament had not come yet. 
So they were still responsible to obey the law and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would communicate the law to people and they were to obey the law. And then Jesus said, so you must be careful. This is Matthew 23, verse three. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. Meaning they, they've created all these other rules, all these other expectations that they put on people that they themselves did not follow, but they expected other people to do. It, it's just like in politics today. Those who are in politics They'll tell the people, don't do this, but they're caught on camera doing the very thing that they're telling the people not to do. It's the same thing in Matthew 23, 1 through 4. They, that's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That's the legalistic system of Jesus's day. It's the same system, legalists who sometimes they're over churches, they're over ministries, they're over organizations, they're over denominations, they're over the small group. And they'll give people a list of things they need to do in order to be right with God, to grow in their relationship with God, spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. They'll tell people, carve out time for God. If you're not carving out time for God, then God's not important to you. If you can't carve out time for God, then you're too busy. I mean, all these legalistic sayings that these legalistic leaders place upon people. And that's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 23, 1 through 4. He also addresses it in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. He says to these people caught up in this legalistic culture of the day, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened by the legalism, this system that the Jewish leaders have placed upon you, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, come away from them, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest from the works that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have placed upon them. Verse 29 of Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So there was a spiritual internal rest for the people from all the legalistic requirements placed upon them by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So what's the yoke of Jesus? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke simply here is being joined to Jesus. Join yourselves to me and learn from me. For I'm much different than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You're joined to them. They're harsh. They're critical. They're demanding. Unhook from them. Come to me and join yourself to me and begin learning from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. So we're going to learn from the gentle, jump, gentle, humble Jesus or those in AD 65. And Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. He was full of grace, unmerited kindness, unlimited forgiveness that we see in Jesus toward those broken in their sins. He was full of truth about God, full of truth about life, full of truth about eternity. How's a person saved? By believing, not by fulfilling the law, but by believing. And so he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's calling people away from the culture of legalism that's cruel, that's critical, that's demanding, and that's destructive. And in the same way today, it's, it's leaving behind that legalistic system. And when Jesus says, come to me, that's the decision that people have to make. Jesus doesn't force anybody to leave their legalistic system, but he invites people to leave the legalistic system and to come to grace, to come to him. And now we come to the new covenant of grace that Jesus established in his blood. Jesus in Matthew 6, 32 through 34, again, he's addressing those who are caught in the legalistic culture of the day. Mark 6, 32 through 34 says, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. 
that's Jesus and his disciples. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Notice that these are people from all the different towns surrounding where Jesus was. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, this is Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So Jesus had compassion on those who were caught up in the culture of legalism, in the culture of works, in the duties, the expectations, the guilt that's associated with it, the shame that's associated with it, the fear of I can't do it, I can't measure up. Jesus had compassion on those caught in the culture of legalism. In the same way that Jesus called those who were caught up in the culture of legalism to come to him, the writer of Hebrews is calling the Jewish people who are caught up in the culture of the law and the culture of legalism to put off the weight of the law and put on the way of grace, put on the way of the new covenant, to rest in the new covenant of grace, to rest in the promised land of grace, to rest in complete forgiveness in Christ, complete righteousness in Christ, closeness with God through Christ. We rest by faith in Jesus. All right, well, let's return to Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud or great multitude of witnesses, having thrown off every weight or having put off every weight that hinders and the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, which was persevering for the reader in AD 65. It was persevering through the persecution. Paul writes about this persecution in Galatians 5.12 when he wrote about being persecuted for teaching about righteousness through the cross of Jesus. He also wrote about it in Galatians 6.12 about those who were avoiding persecution for the cross. And the way they avoided persecution for the cross was by following the law of Moses for righteousness. So this persecution is a part of the religious culture of this day toward those who were coming to faith in Jesus as the Christ and his work on the cross for righteousness and forgiveness and a holy standing before him, which is received by faith. All right, continuing in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything or having put off the weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, the sin of unbelief. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us in AD 65. The race marked out was the persecution that they were experiencing. That was the race. It was having to overcome the persecution, having to endure the persecution, persevering through the persecution. And how would they do that? How would they endure through the persecution? Two ways, by looking back to the faith of those in Hebrews 11 and looking back to the faith of Jesus through the perseverance he had to display to overcome the persecution that he experienced. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. How? How are they going to do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the Greek word there is the founder, the originator, the pioneer and perfecter, the Greek word there is finisher. It's the same Greek word using John 19.30 when Jesus said it's finished. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the finisher of faith. Now, the word our is not in the Greek manuscripts. For some, it says our faith. And many I've seen within the grace movement, within, within Calvinism as well, will say that the faith that we have is not our faith, it's the faith of Jesus in us. And that's the only way we can have faith if it's the faith of Jesus in us. That's not what this verse is saying remotely. Not even close is that what this verse is saying. It's totally taking that verse out of context and it's failure to look behind that verse to the Greek language to see that the word our is not in there. The Greek language reads this way. 
looking to the faith of the founder and finisher, Jesus. I think what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to do, he knows it's going to take faith to get through the persecution. He knows it's going to take faith to overcome the obstacles that are in their way, that, that are being thrown at them. They're hurting. They're in great pain from this persecution. It would be easy for them to give up. It would be easy for them to go away. It would be easy for them to quit. And so the writer says, I want you to look to the faith of Jesus. Because when you look to the faith of Jesus and the persecution that you're experiencing, you're going to be strengthened by looking to his faith. His faith is going to strengthen your faith. By looking to his faith, your faith is going to be strengthened. By looking to the faith of those in Hebrews 11, your faith is going to be strengthened. The faith of Jesus, part of the persecution, the major persecution that the people reading this in AD 65 were experiencing was because of the cross. They believed in the cross. There was a lot of pain associated for these people for believing in the cross of Jesus, for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. The writer is saying, just like it took great faith for Jesus to go to the cross, it's going to take faith for you to endure the persecution that you're experiencing in AD 65 because you've associated yourself with Jesus and his cross. You're no longer associating yourself to, to Moses and the law, but to Jesus and grace, Jesus and the cross. And just like it took great faith for Jesus to go to the cross, it's going to take great faith for you, which you're going to be strengthened by looking to Jesus's faith to endure the persecution that you're undergoing now in AD 65. It took faith for Jesus to endure the persecution and eventually to go to the cross and to endure the pain of the cross. Jesus understood the extreme mental, emotional, and physical pain he would endure from sinful men opposing him. He understood the excruciating pain of dying on a cross. Think about Jesus during the time that he was living. It would have been a daily experience, maybe a weekly experience for Jesus to see people hanging on the cross because he lived in the Roman culture where crucifixion was a common observance for the people of that day. So Jesus knew one day he was going to be crucified on the cross. He understood the pain he would experience when he went to the cross. He understood from the Jewish scriptures the prophecies concerning his sufferings and death. Psalm 22, Psalm 46 through 8, all talk about the death of Jesus, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, 9 through 11. And then you can go back and look in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, Acts 3, 18, Acts 17, 3, Acts 26, 23, that quote those scriptures that I just mentioned to you. Jesus's understanding of the prophecies about him are evident in his conversations with the disciples. You can see this in Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17, 12, Luke 22, 15. Jesus's understanding of the prophecies about his death are seen in his conversation with the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 through 34. So because Jesus understood the sufferings and death he would experience, he asked the Father, is there any other way for his will to be done other than the pain of the cross? Matthew 26, 38 through 39 and 42, Jesus prays to the Father, my Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The cup there is referring to his death. We see that in Matthew 26 through 28, where Jesus says, this is my body. This is the cup. This is the New Testament poured out in my blood. Jesus understood that the will of the Father for him was to go to the cross in order to establish the New Testament of grace, full forgiveness of sins, righteousness, eternal life through his resurrection. And Jesus knew, knew the pain of the cross. So how did Jesus endure the pain of the cross 
by faith. By faith, Jesus endured the physical, mental, and emotional suffering before the cross and the pain of the cross when he was nailed to the cross and he hung on the cross in order to fulfill God's will. You can look at that in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. And the will of God was to establish the New Testament of grace, to put aside the Old Testament of law and to establish the New Testament of grace where we have full forgiveness forever. And it took faith for Jesus to go through the persecution before the cross and the pain of the cross. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 12 to the people. Look at the faith of Jesus. It was his faith that enabled him to endure the pain of the cross. And it's your faith that's going to enable you to endure the pain of the cross associated with your belief in Jesus. All right, well, let's return to Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud or multitude of witnesses, those whose lives testify to living and dying with faith, having thrown off everything that hinders or the weight that hinders and the sin of unbelief that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance in this persecution, this race marked out for us, the us being the persecution for those during AD 65, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter or the founder and finisher of faith, or looking to the faith of Jesus in the original Greek language. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It took faith for Jesus to endure the cross. It took faith knowing he was fulfilling the will of the Father and establishing the new covenant of grace for Jesus to endure the pain of the cross. Also, Jesus, remember we talked about how faith looks to the future and faith sees the future results. In the present time, we haven't seen the future results like the farmer. The farmer sees the future crop. But in the present time, he doesn't see it literally. He only sees it within his mind. That's what Jesus did here, faith. The faith of Jesus looked to the joy that the cross would accomplish. John 16, 21 gives us a little insight into the mind of Jesus as it relates to joy and pain. Jesus knew he would go through the pain of the cross. But he also knew that the pain of the cross would ultimately result in joy. So he kept that joy in his mind as well. Look what Jesus says in John 16, 21. It gives us some insight into the mind of Jesus. It says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again after the cross, after the resurrection, and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. See, Jesus, even in these verses, is pointing his disciples to the future joy that in the present time they had grief, but in the future they would have joy when they saw Jesus resurrected. Jesus knew his time of suffering was coming, just like that of a mother in giving birth, but the mother would also experience joy and would forget the suffering. Well, Jesus' time of suffering on the cross was coming. He knew he would die on the cross. He knew the physical pain he would go through before the cross, the mental pain, the emotional pain. He knew the pain he would go through on the cross. But it was the joy set before him of what the cross would accomplish that enabled him to endure the cross. So what are the results of the cross that produced joy in Jesus? That he knew that joy would come. There was no joy in Jesus when he thought about going to the cross, the pain of it. But then when he thought about the joy that the cross would produce for others, he endured the cross. What were the results that the cross produced? Well, the joy set before Jesus was he knew he would provide for the forgiveness of all sins, for all people, for all time, even though his death to secure forgiveness would be excruciating. The joy of providing full forgiveness. 
Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's so easy to miss that verse in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's easy to just rush right by it and miss the purpose of the writer of Hebrews in stating this. This verse, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, is one of the key verses for the writer of Hebrews. When did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God? Look in Hebrews 1 through 3. This is the introduction to Hebrews that sets up the rest of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our, that's the Jewish people's ancestors through the prophets, Isaiah and the others, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We have to connect that to Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Look at Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. And by that will, the will of God to put aside the Old Testament of law and to establish the New Testament of grace. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10, day after day, priests back during the time of the law stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12 of Hebrews 10, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10 goes on to talk about the full eternal forgiveness of sins. John 19, 30, when he, Jesus, had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. He's on the cross. It's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, meaning it is finished. I have paid the entire sin penalty for the entire world, for all people, for all sins, and for all times. It's finished. The payment has been made. The sacrifice has been done. Forgiveness is now freely, fully, and forever offered to anyone which is received by faith. So Jesus sat down because his work of providing for the purification for sins was finished, for forgiveness of sins was finished. And it took great faith in Jesus to fulfill the will of the Father, to go to the cross, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the full and forever forgiveness of sins for all people. Now, the joy set before Jesus is what we're talking about. The joy set before Jesus was providing for the purification of sins for all people, for all sins, for all time. The joy set before Jesus was the reconciliation of God to the world, where the sin barrier between God and the world was removed. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. The joy set before Jesus was his presence in dwelling people. The joy set before Jesus was seeing people know his father personally and be close to his father relationally, Hebrews 7, 18, Hebrews 8, 11, Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. Now, Jesus in John 17, 13 describes the close personal relationship that believers would have with the father. John 17, 13 says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of my joy within them so that they may have the full measure of my joy, the joy of knowing the Father within them. So part of the joy set before Jesus, which enabled him to endure the cross, was knowing that his blood would cleanse the hearts of people so the presence of the Father could indwell people who had faith in Jesus. And they would have the same joy within them of knowing the Father that Jesus had in knowing the Father. The desire for 
the joy of Jesus to be in believers is the source of Jesus's prayer in John 17, 20 through 26. We just read John 17, 13. John 17, 20 through 26 says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the prayer that they would experience the joy of knowing the Father. Verse 21, that all of them, all believers, all those who believe in me may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. A close loving relationship with the Father. For I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. Verse 25 of chapter 17 of John. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That was the joy set before Jesus. Jesus wanted us to experience the joy that he had of a close relationship with the Father. And it was that joy set before him that enabled him to endure the pain of the cross by faith. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 through 6 about the presence of Jesus in us, enabling us to call God Abba Father. And then the joy set before Jesus was also the joy of the resurrection and himself being in the presence of his Father. Psalm 16, 9 through 11 is a prophecy about Jesus. It reads this way. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy after the resurrection in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That also was the joy set before Jesus. Peter in Acts 2, 25 through 28 quotes Psalm 16, 9 through 11, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Paul quotes Psalm 16, 9 through 11 in Acts 13, 35, talking about both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So by faith, Jesus endured suffering before the cross and the pain on the cross, which then served as an example of faith to those in AD 65 who were being persecuted for their belief in him, his cross, and in his resurrection. So the writer of Hebrews is seeking to move the Jewish reader in AD 65 who's enduring tremendous persecution to focus on the joy of the return of Jesus. That's Hebrews 10, 36 through 39. And to focus on the joy of the coming New Testament city of grace. That's Hebrews 13, 14. And then in the last two chapters of the Bible, talks about the coming New Testament city of grace, which then he's wanting us to focus our joy as well through any difficulties and hardships that we go through on the return of Jesus and this coming New Testament city of grace. All right, back to Hebrews 12, one through four. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses or multitude of those who lived their life by faith and died in faith, Having thrown off the weight that hinders and the sin of unbelief that entangles, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us run with the same faith of those in Hebrews 11, the same faith of Jesus in going to the cross. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter or the founder and finisher of faith, or looking to the faith of Jesus in the original Greek who for the joy set before him endured the cross by faith. The faith of Jesus enabled him to endure the cross and the joy set before him enabled him to endure the cross, scorning the shame of the cross. Now, what does that mean? The cross was a very humiliating way to die during Roman culture. Publicly, people carried their cross. Publicly, they were crucified to the cross. Everybody could see it was humiliating. But Jesus 
scorned the shame of the cross, meaning he didn't care about the humiliation of the cross. He didn't care about the public crucifixion of the cross and the shame that others would try to bring on him with the cross, the Jewish leaders. Jesus scorned its shame. He, he turned away from it because he knew the cross would accomplish forgiveness for us and righteousness for us and would enable the Father to indwell us and we would have the joy of knowing the Father, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of being cleansed from all sins, the joy of being righteous. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, what was the shame of the cross to those in AD 65? Those believing in Jesus were associating themselves with the cross, right? They were associating themselves with the New Testament of grace, the cross. They were disassociating from the law of Moses. So within the culture of the day, that would have put them in a very shameful position. People would have been looking at them with eyes of shame. Look, look at that person. He's not going to the synagogue. He's not walking according to the law of Moses. Oh, he's one of those Jesus believers. She's one of those Jesus believers. They believe in the cross. They believe all their sins are forgiven. They don't believe in the, in the system anymore. They call Jesus the Savior. They're walking in what they call grace. That's embarrassing. That's ridiculous. So it was very shameful during that time to associate yourself with Jesus. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, just like Jesus scorned the shame of the cross, said, you know what, make fun of me, laugh at me, mock me. The cross is going to produce something for the people, forgiveness, purification for sins, righteousness, that's going to bring them joy. And so he's telling the people, by faith, you have to scorn the, the shame associated with the cross. You have to see the accomplishments of the cross, the reality of the cross, Live in the reality of it, even though you're being persecuted for it. Live in the reality of what the cross is about, even though you're being persecuted for your belief in Jesus and the cross. All right, continuing into Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, that's what the writer is telling the Jewish people, in your persecution, in your, your own endurance for the cross, your own persecution for believing in complete forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life through Jesus, by believing in Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners. The sinners are the, the Jewish leaders. They oppose Jesus. They called for his crucifixion. Think about Jesus in your persecution. Think about his endurance, his persecution, when he endured opposition from sinners. So those in, in AD 65 were enduring great opposition from the religious leaders of Judaism and from, from the Gentile leaders as well and many of the Gentile people. They were being persecuted for their belief in Jesus and the cross. So the writer says, consider Jesus, consider his fate that allowed him to endure the pain of the cross and the persecution from the sinners, those who oppose Jesus, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's perseverance. Perseverance is not growing weary and losing heart, then giving up and going away and quitting on Jesus. That's what he's telling the Jewish people. Don't quit on your belief in Jesus. Don't quit on your belief in the return of Jesus, in righteousness by faith, in this coming New Testament city of grace, don't grow weary and lose heart in the persecution. Look at the faith of Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross and persecution, which is the sinful opposition against him, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus didn't grow weary and lose heart in his persecution and his pain of the cross. Look at Jesus. Look at his faith. You will be strengthened, too, in the opposition you're experiencing as well as in the persecution and pain for the cross you're experiencing. In your struggle against sin, this is not talking about immorality. This is not talking about behavior here. That's typically how it's communicated, but that's not the context. In your struggle against sin, meaning the sinful opposition that you're experiencing in AD 65 toward your belief in Jesus and your belief in what he did on the cross, 
in your struggle against the sinful opposition against you, you have not resisted the persecution against this sinful opposition against the leaders who are dragging people out of the synagogues, imprisoning them, taking away their property. You have not resisted this persecution, this opposition to Jesus, this opposition to the cross, the opposition to the new covenant of grace. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the writer is telling the Jewish reader in 8065 that those who are reading this are still alive. You, you have not died for your belief in Jesus, your belief in the New Testament of grace, your belief in righteousness by faith, your belief in the full forgiveness of sins apart from the law of Moses, apart from sacrificing animals. You've not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. Now, one person who viewed life through the lens of faith, he experienced much persecution was Paul. And we see Paul being persecuted for proclaiming Jesus is the Christ and the work of Jesus on the cross. He writes about this persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 14. And we see Paul say the words, we do not lose heart. It's the same of what the writer of Hebrews writes when he says, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners, those opposed to Jesus as the Christ and his work on the cross, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, Paul writes almost the identical words in 2 Corinthians 4.16 when he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though we're experiencing great persecution, we're seeing the results of what grace is producing in the lives of people. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, in our journey of taking the gospel of grace, the new covenant of grace to people around the world, and the persecution we're experiencing from it, and the beating that our body is taking from it, he says, the way we do this is by faith. The same faith the Jewish people needed in AD 65, who are reading the book of Hebrews, is the same faith that Paul demonstrated on his missionary journeys. For we live by faith or we walk by faith and not by sight. He said, I know we're being persecuted and our body is taking a beating, but we continue to journey with the good news of the new covenant of grace into cities all over the world because we see what grace is producing in the lives of people. And then we see that a great motivator for Paul in not losing heart was the love of Jesus for people. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Paul writes, for Christ's love for people, the love of Christ for people compels us. He's not talking about his love for Jesus compels him. He's talking about the love of Jesus for people is what compels him. For Christ's love for people compels us, motivates us not to give up, not to lose heart, not to quit, even though we're being persecuted for our message. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. There's the love of Christ, the love of Christ. One died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul had an eternal perspective on life. And he and his missionary team took the gospel of grace, the new covenant of grace, to people all over the world because he knew that Jesus died for all people all over the world and he wanted to share the good news of what Christ had done for them and by faith he persevered through the problems he experienced the pressures he experienced the persecution and the pain that he experienced on his missionary journeys and then the writer of Hebrews in the same way did not want the Jewish people to grow weary and lose heart Paul didn't grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews didn't want the Jewish people to grow weary and lose heart as they faced persecution. So he was calling them to faith, faith that persevered. And the power they needed to persevere was faith. And the power to persevere would come from looking to the perseverance and faith of those in Hebrews 11, and then looking to the perseverance and faith of Jesus as he endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, even though sinful opposition and sinful people came against him, the Jewish people, when sinful opposition came against them for believing in Jesus, for believing in the new covenant of grace, they would endure with the same faith that Jesus had. Jesus modeled faith that endured when opposition came. Now, in our next study, we're going to continue to examine Hebrews 12 in light of its historical context. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.